Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonino. On this episode, I am speaking with Marissa Harrison. Marissa is the Associate Professor of Psychology in the School of Behavioral Sciences and Education at Penn State at Harrisonburg. She has a bachelor's in psychology and a PhD in biopsychology with a specialization in evolutionary psychology. She is a research psychologist who investigates serial murder and has interest in serial murder from an evolutionary and other psychological perspectives. She's been widely published uh, in the field, and she is the author of the latest book, Just as Deadly, The Psychology of Female Serial Killers. Uh, That's the book we talk about in this conversation. We start out by talking about why the media sensationalizes serial killers. We talk about all of the, you know, podcasts and, you know, different television shows and true crime and all this, and why this is not uh, necessarily a a positive thing. We mention morbid curiosity. We define serial killers. How How are they usually defined? She gives the profile of a female serial killer and and kind of what that looks like from what we usually understand with male serial killers. We talk about some of the motives for women killing. We define psychopathy and sociopathy, and we talk about the PCLR. We talk about mental illness and serial killers. We talk about whether psychopathy should be its own disorder or maybe a neurological disorder or something else. We talk about the need for improved mental health services. Uh, some of her major work that she's done, looking at certain um, data points for female serial killers. We talk about infanticide, the neurobiology of serial killers, uh, the future of research on serial killers, and many more topics. Um, I was very, very interested to talk to her. Her book was fabulous. I hadn't read anything like it, and uh, it's very good. It's very readable. Um, I've read some of her papers as well. Uh, she's a great researcher, wonderful, wonderful person, um, and really trying to do uh, honest work, which is what we need in the field. We need people doing good science, um, and, and that's definitely what she's doing. Um, so, you know, as always, uh, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at conversiondialogues.substack.com. Uh, You can uh, subscribe for free over there and listen to to this one and all the other ones that are up there and the ones that come in the future. And now I bring you Marissa Harrison. I'm here with Marissa Harrison. Marissa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course, yeah. Uh, You've written a, a really interesting and fascinating book, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed it a lot, actually, which is called Just as Deadly. The Psychology of Female Serial Killers, which may be a surprise for some or haven't heard too much about this, so we'll get all into it. So before we do, uh, tell folks a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, what you do, uh, what you currently uh, research and write on. Sure, absolutely. So I am Associate Professor of Psychology at Penn State Harrisburg. By training, I am a biopsychologist with a specialization in evolutionary psychology with some training in social psych and behavioral neuroendocrinology. Um, And I, from an evolutionary perspective, study just about anything because it is a framework. So I've studied everything from love to murder. Uh, And for the past maybe nine years or so, I've gone down the path of studying murder. Very interesting, dark path that needs more and more research to elucidate, but that's what I've been doing lately. 
Yeah, that's that's wonderful. You got you got quite the mix there. I think um, <laughs> one of the things that people slowly start to realize, uh, at least hopefully, is that psychology is a big world. Uh, it's a it's a it's a big world, and so there's all these sub branches uh, that are. Um, I think we play along a little bit better than we used to, but they are can be pretty different. And so you have the social psych folks and Evo psych folks, and you got forensic psych folks and neuropsych folks, and they all kind of do their own thing. And so it's always nice when people have <clears throat> some kind of overlap or they're crossing different uh, sublist disciplines in that way to try and find a cohesive kind of um, uh, pattern through things. So obviously, uh, if you're doing research on murder or things that are a little bit darker of the human nature it's good to have a, a nice uh you know balanced plate of, of of different things to pull from so it's wonderful i absolutely agree with you and uh i teach in an undergraduate psych program and i also teach in a graduate psychology program i taught biopsych biopsychology in the graduate program for a very long time and usually the students came in very hesitant we don't want to learn biopsych and i said listen and 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 they very well know we understand something the best we could when we look at it from multiple angles, right? We try to look at the biopsychosocial point of view. And if you think one of those angles is not important, uh, you're, you're wrong and you're doing a disservice to science. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. That was kind of the model we used as well when I was uh, being trained was biopsychosocial model and, and trying to look at different types. And of course, there are different models that people can use. Um, but <clears throat> you know, I think trying to have a little bit more balance is important. Okay, so um, so for this book, I guess is it's you know it's about mm, I would say a psychopathology. You do emphasize female serial killers for sure, and you've done a few big studies in here that you mentioned. But I, I do see it as kind of a little bit more on certain aspects, I guess, of psychopathology uh, in a way. It's not entirely just about that. I guess the the big question I have for you is. Um, if you, you spend a lot of time looking at different things, wh why did you want to, you know, write this, this book in particular, um, and get this kind of information and research you've done out there? Thank you for asking. It's interesting. You should say that I, I've, I found a lot of information out there on serial murders in general to be either sensationalized or mm -hmm. focusing solely on male perpetrators. And, uh, in my research and my team's research, we've conducted a few studies on female serial murderers, and we found so many differences between them and between male perpetrators. We wanted to get the word out there. And why I wanted to write a book was because, honestly, a lot of the other books out there on serial murder in general either don't have any references in them or reference each other or reference the same old, same old. And I wanted a scientific book out there with references, with documentation, with, you know, certainly my scientific opinions but fact formed opinions out there and you'll find in the book just as deadly there are about 1200 references mm -hmm. so i didn't want to have the same old type of book out there mm -hmm. um so i felt just clarification of the issues and uh presenting my research journey not necessarily about marissa's research journey but the research my team and i have done to try to elucidate um the means motives and makings of female serial murderers yeah, well, you you do it you know, very very well, so it's it's, it's great. I, before we get into all the all the good stuff, um, I, I I do want to ask about just kind of get it out of the way, I guess. This this idea that <clears throat> people have almost this obsessive uh, fascination with uh, true crime and serial killers, and obviously there's a million shows about it, and uh, documentaries and podcasts and all these things like that. And so why? 
why 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 do you think that is and uh, you know i mean i have my own personal opinions about it i think a lot of these do uh sort of a disservice i don't think sensationalizing things is very helpful in the grand scheme of things um and then we can talk about morbid curiosity i've had colton scrivener on he's a great guy and we, we've talked about this stuff as well and you mentioned in your book you know morbid curiosity as well so i guess uh, why this obsession why do people sensationalize this stuff why we shouldn't do that and you know any any aspects of morbid curiosity you want to you want to touch on here sure so uh yeah i'm definitely familiar with colton's work uh Erica Frederick and I uh, did a research project and published a paper on morbid curiosity as it relates to protective vigilance, which relates to interest in serial murder. So let me explain that a little. So morbid curiosity, right? We pay attention to the things that can harm us. And we're not arguing that it's conscious. In other words, you're not saying, okay, let me look at that car accident because it's going to hurt me. It's not really what we do. We, we argue it's an evolved drive. So over time, humans who paid attention to the things that could harm us probably left more descendants than humans who didn't pay attention to those things. And so why is that the case? Well, others have argued that protective vigilance would be a great term for that, right? So again, I attend to the things. I am vigilant about the things that can harm me. I pay attention to them. Uh, and we did find in our research that was uh, related to interest in serial murder. I, I don't think it's a huge stretch, but we did document it with um, uh, with a scientific study. Um, I agree with you. Now, it, you know, I am pleased that people are interested in science, of course. I think knowing is preferable to not knowing in, in any realm. But I totally agree with you in terms of uh, the sensationalism of murder and particularly serial murder. I, I do think it goes to an extreme. Uh, I don't want to re-victimize victims or their families uh, and, and their friends. Uh, you'll never catch me talking about gore or stuff like that. I just, it gives me, honestly, it gives me a sick feeling in my stomach to think that anything would hurt the victims further than they're already hurt. Um, and so as a research psychologist, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write a book. Uh, I hope people like the book. I hope they find it engaging, but it's not going to be one of those dark and stormy night type things. I just, that's just not who I am or what I'm going to do. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's really what we're discussing is there's a, there's a, a type of ethic, I think, that has to be surrounding, I, I think, a lot of things, but really around sensitive material. I mean, these are things that, you know, people's lives have been, um, you know, forever changed and turned upside down from some pretty tough stuff. People that survive potential attempts at being, you know, kidnapped or murdered or, or those that have had family members that have. And so, um, you know, I think it's, of course, there is obviously some curiosity about some of these things, human nature, or, you know, potential, you know, harm. I think that's all, you know, kind of generally that's fine to be interested of, you know, nominally. But I think there is a, we do have to have these kind of ethical contours about how we talk about this stuff, how much we talk about this stuff, the way in which we talk about this stuff. So, you know, obviously, I think this is why you're, your book is very good because it helps contribute to that conversation of, you know, good science, but also saying, you know, here's a way in which to talk about this that's respectful, that's, you know, good science communication and good research and good data. So, you know, I think that that's, you know, obviously I think should be, you know, very central. So, Thank you for that, Xavier. I, I really, I have to stress, I mean, if, if somebody's interested in watching, you know, a, a, a drama or a you know a documentary on tv I, i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that sure. yeah. so i'm not saying there's anything wrong with being interested in a documentary or specials on uh um cable networks in fact i really really respect 
a lot of the work done by, for example, A&E and uh, um, Oxygen Channel puts out some really good stuff as well as the networks. Um, NBC Peacock does some great stuff. Believe me, I do know these things are true and they're not paying me. Um, but what I get, they're not, what you don't get paid for this kind of thing. You know? What, what I, I get concerned is like, if somebody's going to try to pay a serial killer for her underpants, um, which does happen, I, that's a little extreme or having watercolors of Ted Bundy committing crimes or wanting the knife that Richard Ramirez used. I, I, or, or phone cords used in crimes i i don't know as i'm as you know i'm a scientist but now going back to being a human being i don't know why you would want that stuff i don't i i that alarms me a little bit um and generally speaking i've gotten people very respectfully interested in wanting to learn in uh learn about my research and whatnot but i do get some strange inquiries and, and contacts sure and sure. i try to handle it diplomatically i'll try to be respectful i mean not try i'll always be respectful and if something creeps me out a little i mean i have called the police before on some of the stuff that i've received so i do that kind of thing the extreme goes a long way and i i just if i may add this one thing sure. i won't i won't mention names but i do know um i'm friendly with someone whose loved one was was murdered and it, it's a pretty famous murder and she didn't know that she was participating in a podcast that at the end after she participated called it a sexy murder and she was traumatized and she called me and she said i can't believe somebody did that uh, and i said i can't believe that either but there are people to take it to, to that extreme and so i mean you you do you I, there's nothing we could do to control other people it's just i can tell you that's not something i would participate in mm-hmm. yeah no no absolutely not yeah that's 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 uh, that's, that's absolutely awful well i guess um you know th- those those bits of it aside we can get into some of the uh some of the stuff that's in the book so the first thing to 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 discuss here is um how do we how do we give me the the boundaries or limits here of what it is so how do we define uh, what a serial killer is and is not. Um, is that the right term we should still be using? I think it's kind of more of a colloquial thing, but I think I don't know if there's more of a appropriate term. Uh, I don't I don't get too hung up on terms. I mean, they're always, sure. they're always changing. But, you know, I think there's some ways to be kind of, you know, as respectful as you can. So sure. how, how do we usually define it? <clears throat> so, I mean, I do use the term serial killer in my research because I think that's how people would look to access the research. But you are right. Some people do use the term serial homicide offender, SHO. Um, in academics, what I've seen use the definition would be three or more victims with a cooling off period between murders of at least one week. But okay. different entities have different definitions. I've seen two murders, et cetera. I, when I read the United States FBI definition online, um, it occurs to me that maybe somebody who uh, was involved in two uh, DUI or DWI, driving while intoxicated deaths, would be considered a serial killer. And I, whereas the whole thing is horrible, I, that, I don't think that's what we're trying to capture here. So in academia, I still use the term serial killer. Um, uh, three or more victims with a cooling off period between each of at least one week. Mm. So this is really, I guess, the the serial part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And it, and this is what is making it different than um, 
you know, someone that, you know, is a crime of passion, or as you mentioned, you know, somebody had a, there was an accident and someone sure. died in voluntary manslaughter, things like that. When we think of this, whether it's two or three or whatever, <clears throat> is there something about, I guess, I mean, I might be jumping ahead here a little bit, but is there something about folks that are doing this, you know, a murder, cooling off period, another murder, cooling off murder, you know, so on, that there's a a certain type of profile or a type or a personality kind of aspect to this because obviously a lot of people you know aren't um you know doing this kind of stuff or, right. or thinking about doing this stuff and so for some folks how do we think about this idea of of a, of a profile of what we can see or some patterns or themes for folks that will do serial types of, of uh, murders Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a great question. So I will tell you, I have not studied male serial killers, male serial homicide offenders, uh, as much as I have female serial killers. So I can tell you more about female serial killers. Um, I will say comparatively, male serial killers, female serial killers, there tends to be an overrepresentation of mental illness. And in the data that we have, something like 90% of the male serial killers we studied had some form of mental illness versus about 40% of female serial killers. So there's a lot of mental illness going on here. When you consider in the population in the United States, the the percentage is about one out of five. So 20%. So you figure 40%, a lot higher, 90%, an awful lot higher. So there is mental illness involved. Uh, when it comes to women who perpetrate these crimes, um, I would think you'd have to be cold and calculating okay maybe the first one happened right but you'd have to plan the second and plan the third to meet the definition of female serial killer um in my book and in my research so the you know i've conducted research separately and then i conducted research for the purposes of writing the book i did find a lot of psychopathy so a lot of psychopaths uh somebody able to well maybe somebody who doesn't experience emotions in the first place and they very likely know that this is the wrong thing to do but they're going to do it anyway absolutely disregard for the rights of others callous um glib you know that kind of thing so probably some psychopathy involved although probably not always um what we found uh, in our uh, research was the the tent they tend now my i just let me just say this the data that we collected were based on serial murders perpetrated by females committed in the United States. Mm -hmm. So there might be differences between countries. There might be differences between Western world and Eastern world cultures, right? We know that, but in the United States, they tended to be white. Mm -hmm. They tend to be probably in their thirties when they started, when we could ascertain religion, which wasn't very frequently, always it was Christian. Now, I can't, I've got to say we couldn't get the data for everybody, but it was 100% of the time these women were Christian, probably, mar- well, probably married at the time of that, the, their time of their first murder, but likely to be married more than once. Um, probably pretty smart, at least above high school. So, so high school diploma completed, some college completed, and a variety of professions, but up to, I think it was 39% were uh, nurses, nurses, aides, hospital administrator, or some other kind of caregiving role. So there is what we can call maybe a profile of, if we put all the statistics together, right? But I want to mirror something that you said before, and that 
almost everybody doesn't do this, right? So you're going to find somebody that checks all the marks in the profile that we laid out. And they're probably not going to become a serial killer. But when we look back, we, we did a study with, we found 64 women who committed the crimes in, in the United States or what was to be the United States because we had some in the late 1700s. Um, yeah, that's that's really what we found. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you, the way you're describing it, it sounds like, you know, a suburban soccer mom of sorts. I mean, it's just not, it's not, uh, you know, yikes, you know. Um, but I think that's where the uh, the idea of like, you know, yes, yeah, someone can meet all the criteria. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be killed. So I'm going to just say this audibly. You said that while I took a drink of my water, and I almost um, did (laughs) was rude there. Uh, Yeah, it does sound like a suburban soccer mom. In fact, this is interesting. I I sent the paper. One of my great friends from high school is a, a nurse. And um, I sent her my paper and she called me. She goes, oh, my God, I think you described me here. (laughs) And then we got to talking. And this was somebody I know a very long time and, you know, clearly not scientific. And I said, why do you think a nurse would would do this? And my friend said to me, hey, now don't take this the wrong way. But right now I could sit here and tell you tell you 100 ways I can kill you and no one would ever determine it. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have the, the. people in the hospital profession have the means to do it. They have access to vulnerable patients, et cetera. So nobody knows why, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think with, 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 uh, you talk about in the book, but with, with, uh, female serial killers, <clears throat> I guess the, the question here that some people will be curious about is, is, well, well, um, we can get to maybe just general sex differences at some point, but, um, I guess the thing here would be, what would be somebody's motivation Right. Or if you're talking about about females, what would be their motivation to want to you know, kill multiple people? And if a large part of them are in the healthcare profession or they're nurses or in the helping profession, you know, it seems like there would be a different type of way in which someone would uh, have multiple kills, you know, than maybe some of the more, uh, I don't want to say grotesque, but some of the more common ways that we know with men uh, or we have known with men. But I, so I guess what is it that you feel or in the in the cases you've observed or looked at and some of the ones you're talking about in the book is the motivation. Obviously, the, you're talking about a financial motivation, some money, right. things like that. But what are some incentives for, for, for women, you know, killing, you know, multiple times? All right. So you asked about the, the motives of uh, female serial killers. Um, and the most common one is financial gain. But the motives really are they're they're all over the place. I mean, they some killers kill to be, you know, a, a try to be a hero um, for, you know, just for the thrill of it. Some kill to get people, quote unquote, out of the way. Um, there is a variety of motives. What we did find very interestingly is that um, there there are structures and classifications of motives put forth based on male serial murder. They, they were um, put together by experts in the field and really female serial killers don't fit neatly into those motives. But um if we had to, definitely the most common uh, motive would be financial gain or what they would refer to in the literature as a hedonistic motive. Like I'm getting something out of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for for profit, and you ask what the incentive would be. And I mean, just reading the different cases, definitely there's there was monetary gain, like insurance from dead husbands or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um I also saw some cases, though, where, where the female serial killer said, I don't really know why I did it. I did like so one woman killed all of her kids. And she said, well, I don't know why I did it. I really did love my family. Uh, and she said it was um, I'm trying to think 
uh, Rhonda Bell Martin. Right? So she, she said, I, I killed my family. I don't know why I did it. I really did love them. Maybe somebody should study my brain. Hmm. So, you know, motives go from profit, thrill seeking, sometimes angel of mercy, although not, I didn't see that very frequently, even with the, the nurses. Hmm. Um, and even like collateral damage, let me just get you out of the way so I can continue to commit my crimes. Hmm. Hmm. This is very interesting how <clears throat> those motives seem, well, I, I mean, I can ask, but it, it doesn't seem as common with with males. And so I, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, I, we'll talk about it later, but <clears throat> what, what, just generally, why do we look at or why has there been more press or more coverage of male serial killers? I mean, people could list off, you know, you know, Gacy, Bundy, mm-hmm. Dahmer, you know, uh, Green River, you know, all the all these people that you know. And part of that probably is from, um, uh, you know, uh, fictitious accounts or dramatizations or things like that. But still, why why is it is it just the kind of more shock and all of things? Is it the is it the number of murders? Is it how? What is it that gets male serial killers get more? I guess, coverage than females. I I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's the shock of it. I think that's the more morbid curiosity, right? And if you compare the crimes, like somebody, um, so almost always a male serial killer, it's a a sexual motivation. So you're going to find somebody who's very victimized, mutilated, maybe bodies left behind, just terrible, terrible crimes. Uh, We might not know who it is, but we might see their victims and what they've done to, you know, what typically these women, I know they kill men as well. Sometimes they kill children, but largely they target women versus a female serial killer. Uh, evidence suggests that um, we just kind of, there's, we, we have this string of, of, of poor unfortunate victims and then maybe realize this woman has been the common denominator. Right? So you, you have a, a certain woman tied to a series of dead victims and maybe the crime isn't, perceived as gruesome and shocking compared to that of male serial killers so for example a nurse who kills patients certainly it's terrible but giving somebody a heart attack with insulin might not capture our attention as much as you know a string of disposed victims in in you know in and around washington state or something like that so i do believe it's more of a curiosity and then you mentioned something about productions um you know largely amplifying or, or or showing to the world what male serial killers have done but the truth is they wouldn't make those shows and those movies if people weren't going to watch them yeah. right so I, it's 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 you know it's it's cumulative causation it's a, it's a reflection of what people are interested in and then by virtue of showing these things people become more interested in them mm-hmm. uh it's just right so people don't think somebody killing eight babies is something interesting you want to see on tv it's terrible it's 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 horrible it's shocking the number one word i've gotten in my book reviews from from people and professionals is disturbing because i talk about some of the infanticides mm-hmm. and whatnot and it is they're, they're absolutely right mm-hmm. but i don't know i don't that it, it doesn't make for good tv and i don't say i i blame them on that one mm. yeah it's, it's, it's very interesting i, I wonder Again, we'll come to maybe some of the the differences. You know, typically men are seen to be more aggressive than women and things right. like that. But uh, I, again, I think some of the stuff in your book shows that you know men and women can and do kill serially. Right. Um, 
obviously there are differences in how they do it or the frequency or the volume, but they, they absolutely do. Um, so it's, it's, it is, it is interesting. So <clears throat> let's talk about, um, uh, psychopathy, sociopathy, um, about those terms and we can mention the PCLR. So how do you usually, uh, in the literature and in research, how do we use these terms? People will say kind of colloquially like, well, this is a psychopath or a sociopath. And my understanding is that there's people don't really agree. It's a, they're kind of interchangeable, but I do think that some prefer some more than others. And some people will say there's a difference. How do you usually kind of explain this? So I'm going to go with the, the, the preponderance of professional opinions on this because I, yeah. I, again, right. Because I, I stress, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a counseling psychologist. And sure. like you, I have heard the terms psychopath or psychopathy and sociopath or sociopathy just mm -hmm. used interchangeably. And I guess at the end of the day, reading everything I could about it, probably the best differentiation I heard. And I think it was Hare that said this was that if you believe the issues this person have is it has is solely a product of society, then you might say sociopath. But mm -hmm. if there would be a biopsychosocial component mm -hmm. to the way they're feeling and behaving, then it would be psychopathy. Mm -hmm. So in my book, I went with psychopathy, although when the literature I cited used those terms interchangeably, then I had to do that. Mm -hmm. I would say that, that that sounds right. I mean my understanding is that psychopathy is the more preferred term. It's the one that I use, but I've heard people, you know, argue about it. So I, I don't, I don't really have a, 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 a any kind of aspect in this race about which is the right term. And maybe there is a more accurate one. I, and I, I just don't know, but I also use psychopathy. So maybe we can talk about, um, uh, you know, Harris checklist uh, with psychopathy. I think that's important. So the PCLR, um, it's the revised edition. I don't know if there's a newer one. I think that's still the current one. I could be wrong on that. Um, was made by Hare. It's based on a four-factor model of psychopathy. I think I have this right. I haven't given it in so many years, but uh, and it's 20 items uh, for four factors. I think it does map on to the big five uh, of, of personality. And the, usually the 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 items are scored on a zero, one, and two, if I remember correctly. And so the higher the it is, the more you you score higher on on, on psychopathy. The lower, sure. obviously, the, the lower. Now, <clears throat> this is given to folks, and obviously, so as a disclaimer for in terms of kind of psychometrics or psychological assessment, you never make. Well, psychopathy isn't a formal diagnosis. That's one right, thing. But right. you're not going to formally label, let's say, somebody uh, uh, a psychopath or a sociopath, whichever word you prefer, based on one measurement, right? Obviously, right. there's an interview. There's collateral interviews. <clears throat> you're going to give uh, other batter, uh, uh, other uh, tests within the battery. Many, many components of this going. But you know, obviously, if you're if somebody comes in and they're and they're usually this is given in forensic hospitals. And so you're going to give sure. a, um, uh, you know, if you're doing a type of risk assessment or if someone has a, uh, the instant offense and then their subsequent offenses, you know, and it's, it, it, you know, behooves somebody to say, we should probably look into this. And so they would, you know, Harris PCLR is, is one of the, the go-to or has been the go-to. 
Um, <clears throat> but one of the things my understanding of this was, and again, I'm not close to this kind of research on this, but um, clinical or otherwise, but is that we have come to, and I believe Hare himself as well, was that psychopathy is a type of continuum in the sense that it is not a, so to put it this way, that these are more continuous variables, that these aren't discrete variables. So um, d- discrete variables being you you either are or you're not, you're in right. this bucket or not in this bucket, um, but it, it, psychopathy is more of a continuum. So you're, people are going to place different places on there. Sure. And there are... <clears throat> Um, maybe I don't want to say adaptive ways in which we do it, but there's ways in which we, we, uh, subliminate that, I guess, and and we use it advantageously in society. So if you run a big business, you might have some, some traits or whatever, but in a clinical sense where people have committed crimes or committed murders and they're scoring in a certain range that they're going to fall somewhere in this kind of nucleus or this kind of right. uh, space on, on the continuum. So I guess all that kind of uh, front loading on that, wh- how much do you think about psychopathy as a continuum? How, what do you think about the PCLR? Again, in, in an academic sense, I, I know you're not in the clinical world, sure. but just in an academic sense as an instrument for trying to understand <clears throat> where folks are. Cause when you come across it, I don't know if you're, in the literature you're looking at it, you're like, well, did this person, where did they score on this? And if that isn't, that is the case, if they did or they didn't, uh, how, how do you usually see these instruments or these ways of conceptualizing psychopathology or um, psychopathy? Sure, absolutely. And so just to get the disclaimer out there, as you said, I am not a clinician. The only thing I can add to my own research and to my book was others' reports of <laughs> PCLR scores, right? So I just wanted to make sure because you know, we psychologists, we have to be very upfront about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have seen the PCLR used to assess serial killers, including uh, Eileen Moronos and um, just a couple other cases. Uh, I agree with you that the evidence strongly suggests it's a continuum, right? So um, there, I isn't. I do think there is a cutoff score, right? Set forth. I believe by, so. I believe yeah. So. And I think it's lower in Europe than it is in the United States, which is interesting, it right? Is interesting, yeah. So I, is that the kind of thing where, and again, I don't have the clinical training for this, but I mean, as, as psychopathy falling on a continuum, if you fall above a certain score, does that mean you're in the realm where you are capable of harm, right? Versus a black and white type of, you know, like this binary psychopath. Yes. Psychopath. No, uh, I do agree about the continuum piece. And I do mirror what you said about some people using psychopathy, not for criminality per se, but they it's been studied as a trait in some successful CEOs and whatnot, right? If you yeah. don't care what other people feel, it's easier to get to the top. So right. some people could parlay that, you know, kind of lack of emotion, or I do understand your emotion, I just don't care about it, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. claw their way to the top. I hear you. Um, and there are some people who argue that it could be an evolved thing, right? Like an advantageous. Uh, uh, so part of psychopathy, as you know, is it's not just the callousness. It's yeah. I can act like I have emotions if I need to, right? Mm-hmm. And Cleckley long ago referred to that as the mask of sanity. So if you're upset and you're crying, then I can pretend to cry, right? But then I don't mean it. And I can just turn that off on a dime, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that psychopathy, that that dangerous indifference accompanied with that well i can act it out if i need to might have evolved as as a you know as as a 
societal strategy. So it is an interesting construct. Uh, you are right in that it's not a formal mental health diagnosis. I'm not sure that should be the case, but you and I don't make the rules about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or That's the right. ICD-11, right? So, but maybe it's time to 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 take a look at that. Uh, but it is, you know, part of psychopathy, if I'm not mistaken, is um, uh, antisocial uh, acts, right? So that could qualify mm-hmm. for antisocial personality disorder, which would be uh, diagnosable. Um, I can't imagine some, and I don't know if this is controversial, but anybody, male or female, who's committed serial murder, um, so, you know, at least three, I don't know how you don't turn off your emotion. I don't know how there's not at least some form of psychopathy involved. And let's say somebody kills one person. To meet that definition, you've got to kill somebody else and then wait and then kill somebody else. That takes cold and calculating and you know, as little as emotions as possible, I would think. Uh, but that's just my take on it. How about mm-hmm. you? What were you thinking on that? Well, I, I think it's it, it, what becomes uh, a lot of a lot. There's a lot of crossover here on this stuff. So I think the first thing is about the the cutoff. I would imagine the cutoff. I, I can't remember. It's been a long time, but I remember typically how these measures work is that there's something that reaches what we would say clinical significance, mm-hmm. and so at that point, it's more of a not a you do or you don't have something it's more of okay at this level <clears throat> it's been enough of the items that reach you know these certain um uh scores and this total number or raw score or whatever if you're converting the t scores c scores whatever reaches clinical significance to say that this would have a clinical impairment of sorts or this is going to be enough to Im- Im- impact right. negatively on in a, in a more globalized way that that would be my my assumption again i, I haven't looked at it in a long time um yeah, I, I, it's really tricky. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have enough well-developed opinions on on this. I think it. I do think it's really difficult. So, okay, here's my here's my thoughts on this. <laughs> I do think because this comes to like a conceptual thing. Right. So you can obviously have various types of mental disorders, what we would classify as mental disorders and or mental illness, and not have psychopathy or psychopathic traits. Of of course, even for folks that are that do have antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder, et cetera. In the inverse of that, I, I'm not thinking of anything specifically. So, I, and again, this is this is just my opinion without data. So, this isn't an empirical statement I'm making. But I would suspect that you could be, um, you know, very high on on psychopathy, and uh, to use that term, an individual with psychopathy, uh, or that, that that exhibits psychopathy, without mental illness. Now, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have data in front of me. I haven't done that research, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of psychopathy where, you know, and it it really just could become one of those things about how we conceptualize things. So 
for example, let's take personality disorders out of the picture for a minute. Sure. You know, is there a space where someone could could you know be you know psychopathic in their behavior and even aspects of who they are, and have no clinical disorders? They don't have depression. They don't have anxiety. They don't have psychosis. They don't have an eating disorder. They don't have a sleep disorder. They don't have a neurodevelopmental disorder, right. <clears throat> et cetera. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I hear you. So here's where I, what I'm going to say to that. Go ahead, so what, what I heard you say was that somebody with psychopathy might not have another disorder. So that would be comorbid, right? But I would argue that psychopathy is a mental disorder. I would order. I would. I would argue that it is because of how it must have come about. I mean, surely there might be some people born without the ability to feel emotions. But I could tell you in my readings, and again, I'm a research psychologist. I've been doing this a long time. Not being a clinician aside, I am a data wrangler, and I could look at commonalities. Um, so, if psychopathy is maybe it's not comorbid with anything else but think of what psychopathy is in that you have the argue, the argued inability to feel emotions or understand or care about somebody else's emotions now can't we or can't we argue that is disordered thinking that's not thinking like the rest of us you and i wouldn't do the things that serial killers do right who, who have psychopathy do um, and so to come to that state, right, to come to being a psychopath, I would say, and again, I don't know the history of everybody, right? I, I, we know that. But in the, in the case studies that I put together for my book, and I did, did about 27 of them, including so clearly mostly females, but some males as well, something happened to these individuals when they were younger, sexually traumatized physically abused otherwise really sure. really horrible things yeah. now when if something like that is is done to a kid to a child how can they fight back they don't what they do is they dissociate they turn they turn it off they turn off the world because it's the only way they can get through these bad things that are happening to them and so for some people that turning off of emotions was adaptive right and then maybe they just didn't have the ability to turn them back on, or this happened at some kind, like, again, I'm not a clinician, but maybe there was some kind of clinical period or rather critical period by which these emotions couldn't be turned back on. And now they just can't do it. And I bring up this case. I know I wrote about female serial killers, but I bring up the, the case of John Wayne Gacy, who was beaten literally in the head by his father for years for years and then he was molested by two different people yeah. and casey might might have i'm sorry john wayne gacy might have been a, a a psychopath but i i people don't usually lie about being molested and his sister corroborated something has had happened okay mm -hmm. so beaten mercilessly and molested twice he had told his friend who wrote a book about him it was the, I, I read about it in my book i'm sorry the guy's name escapes me but he said you know when my father used to be in i mean i just turned off all my i just turned it all off and i turned off my emotions how else could i get through it couldn't fight back with my dad so turning all of it off was a response it was adaptive for him and then look how that came to affect other people very very badly down the road like 33 victims so by virtue of psychopathy being the end result of something tumultuous 
why can't we argue that that's a separate mental disorder? Why can't we argue that's disordered thinking? It's not thinking like the rest of us. And so somebody who's outside of the clinical world, I mean, I'm a psychologist, we're all cut. I'm a research psychologist. We're all cut from the same cloth, but somebody looking you know, from within, but into the clinical world, I'm not really sure why that's not argued for more thoroughly. So do you have any, th- I'm curious of your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I just think that because it's different means it's disorderly. And I know you're not saying that. I know you're not saying that, but, but, but look, because it, yes, someone has disordered thinking or they have poor affect regulation or they have terrible interpersonal skills or they have, you know, all these things that is different from the, you know, 68% in the bell curve of the rest of us and and normals, quote unquote, in society. Right. Right. I don't necessarily think that it's necessarily disorderly. I think it's just different. And I, again, you're 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 talking about this in the sense of well, they're doing horrible things, right? Or right. potentially doing horrible things. Right. Which isn't good, obviously. But I guess that the question becomes which do we have here? We have horrible acts or horrible behaviors. But it doesn't necessarily always translate to the person. Now, obviously, there's somebody that's doing it, but it doesn't mean we don't know the motives or intentions of of what people are doing. And yes, obviously, there's the comorbidity, right? Could you have one or the other without the other? Sure. Could you be psychopathic and not have a mental disorder, another mental disorder, like personality disorder or clinical disorder? Sure. Or could you have a clinical or personality disorder and not have psychopathy? Yes. In terms of comorbidity, I think we agree there. In terms of psychopathy as its own disorder, I mean, I'm not sure why it's not placed there. I mean, I probably wouldn't fight it if it was placed there. (laughs) But I – I. It's a strange thing, right? Because it's – I don't know – I don't know what the epidemiological rates are. On, on on people that uh, um, have psychopathy, and if it would be enough to say a potential for people having it or not having it, you know, maybe it is a, a certain uh, group that that does have it. I totally agree in terms of your ideas about etiology. Right, there are potential for people to have serious abuse, neglect, all different types of all different types of abuse and various trauma throughout uh, early attachment periods, uh, childhood, adolescence. But there are many people that do have that and don't go and kill right. people, which, I, which I, I know you're not saying that either. And I say that, that that's what that's, a, you know, just your path is set. Uh, but I think it obviously would be in the mix for sure. And then you're right. Many people that are serial killers do have those types of backgrounds. Um, but I, I think one, 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 hypothesis that people have made for a lot of different things for serial killers or people's um, psychopathy uh, for pedophiles um, is that there's a, a chance that it could be a neurological disorder sure which also has some potential value to that argument as well unclear right it's unclear right. absolutely unclear because yep. you have you know less you know less uh uh you know neuronal activity or less white or gray matter or the fmri lights up in this space and it doesn't for other people doesn't necessarily correlate with aha that's why (laughs) 
Oh, you, you there's know. yeah, there's there's no being able to tell. Even like a, the world premier neurocriminologist Adrian Rain, even he said, nope, you can't put somebody in a brain scanner and say, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, you're going to be a serial killer. Yeah. There's yeah. just not, and just as exactly like you said, mm-hmm. there could be structural issues, there could be functional sure, issues, sure, there could be sure. connectivity issues. We just don't know at this point. And yeah. you know, that's actually one question I always get. What about the you know the biopsychology of of serial killers? I, I mean, I tried to write a chapter on it in my book, and there's just, there's really not a lot out there. Certainly, yeah. you could extrapolate and talk about, well, if somebody is a psychopathy, uh, if somebody is a psychopath, or if somebody at the very least has frontal lobe dysregulation where they mm-hmm. can't control their impulses. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that doesn't translate necessarily into serial murder. People ask me, what's the, you know, the biology of the serial murder? And that murderer, and that's just not known. And and people get mad when I can't answer that. I'm like, well, I can't make it up for you and still be a scientist. It's just, there's a couple <laughs> studies out there that might, you know, that look post-mortem at, at, at the, the brains, like this very famous mm-hmm. serial killer, a, a male who committed crimes in, in France. And he was one of the last people to die by, by guillotine. They examined his brain like fairly recently and found some 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 lesions that could have explained some outbursts so maybe you have a handful like that but it's not cut and dry Xavier I what I argue in my book and I try to you know present multiple perspectives biopsychosocial is that I mean you can have somebody who has you know evolutionary forces and and biopsych issues, hormonal and genetics, and you can argue that they have a traumagenic background and some clinical disorder and be at a time in history where they're oppressed with gender roles. You can have all of these things. But remember, almost everybody who ever lived was not a serial killer, right? right. So we don't right. know the the quote unquote recipe for this. I, I also wonder here about <clears throat> just personality. Right. And the, the person that comes to mind and, you know, is, is kind of the, you know, the, the low hanging fruit here, I guess, if you will, of, of examples. But I think of Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. which very unclear. Uh, I mean, he he claimed all the way to the end. He, nothing happened to him in childhood. He, you know, he as far as I can remember, uh, there was no real abuse. There was no. And I wonder. Look, I mean. <laughs> You know, right. there's no intelligent designer behind the curtain here, right? Natural selection has flaws. I mean, there's just right. ways in which this is just you're going to get something that uh, just turned out wrong. And I just wonder right. if, perhaps, if if there's certain, you know, just there's too many combinations of aspects of personality that are all blending together. And, you know, you have people that have instinctual drives and they have less inhibitions and all of these things. And so I... I is that a disorder? I mean, you know, I don't know. So I don't, I mean, obviously it's disorderly conduct obviously, well, yeah, right. for, for the people, of course, but in terms sure. of a clinical sense, I don't know. I, I'm not, um, maybe I'm just less, uh, less eager about it uh, than you are about the, I, having a I disorder. Hear you. No, I, I, you're exactly right. I wouldn't fight it though. I wouldn't fight it though. I, wouldn't fight I, it. I won't fight it either. I won't fight back. I, I do wonder if it's, Time to re-examine, although I don't think it's ever been stopped being examined, the definition of, you know, legal sanity versus insanity. Because oh, yeah, that's long overdue. Like, right. John Wayne Gacy or like, long overdue. For example, Eileen Waronos. I, I mean, she had schizophrenia, the woman. Yes. I mean, she yes. and, it's and a, a lot of abuse. A lot of abuse. Abu- oh, my gosh. The, yeah, absolutely. I 
Um, and that's, that's the one, somebody asked me, what's the one thing that surprised me after emerging from writing my book? It's that I felt sorry for some of the serial oh, yeah. killers. I yeah. did. And it's surely, believe me, exclamation point. I feel exponentially worse for the victims and their families. And of course, their of, course. of course I do. Course. But then take somebody like Eileen Moronos. Does anybody read her background? She was raped and she had people alleged were her, his grandfather's baby. Her, yeah. her father was a convicted child molester who died by suicide. Her mother abandoned them. She had an incestuous relationship with her brother. She got set on fire when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Her mm-hmm. grandparents refused, or her grandmother, I should say. Eileen's grades were going down in school, and, and they called the high school and said, can we get her counseling? And they said no. And then they threw her out when she was pregnant. So, you know, I, I if I told you that story and didn't say it was Eileen Moronos, people would have mercy and pity on this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish she had gotten the help she needed, you know, clearly. Maybe yeah. seven men would still be alive. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I, I think that there's also this idea of, you know, it is, it is conceptually, I think it's different when, I don't know, there's, there's a type of, there's a yeah, there's a philosophical or conceptual difference here of you know if somebody is as you're as you're pointing out with Eileen's story traumatized uh, in a variety of ways so for you know long term some what people say is complex trauma of course um and she has you know obviously a, a, a chronic mental illness with psychosis of sorts you know with schizophrenia that almost just she's just an untreated mentally ill patient right and she's ill she's sick and that that to me just again from my experience my clinical experience working with with folks that have psychosis and schizophrenia for a long time you know i just have a lot of empathy for for folks like that i don't have i mean again of course anybody that has you know that's uh families of the victims of course but uh, I have empathy as well there, and it, it's horrible. And but a lot of that is a failed, a lot of a failed lot of things, right? <laughs> Relationships right. and and a system and and not getting treatment. But that's yeah. different than just. Well, we don't know why this person just started killing all these people. Uh, right. Could it could have been neurological? Was it personality? Was it some something in their history? They don't have. They don't carry a, a mental illness. You know, that I just think that's a conceptually a different way of looking at it. Right. Because like one is more coming from a clinical perspective and the other one is, well, we don't know. And as far as we know, there's no, you know, psychosis or things like that. And so that's much different, I think, in in, in terms of what are we looking at? I, I guess the other thing here is I'll, I'll make the I'll make two statements here about this. So the first thing is about psychosis. So right. there is a small elevation of violent crimes for folks that have um, some psychosis and mental illness, especially folks that are um, chronically homeless and they have other issues going on. It is still nowhere near, uh, I don't have numbers in front of me, nowhere near, uh, you know, anything of, you know, above, you know, 10 or 15% or things like that. So the the likelihood is, is that people that are mentally ill, yes, are they going to be more likely to be potentially violent than just quote unquote people that don't have mental illness yes but it's not 
that significant. Yeah, I don't I don't have the numbers on that either, but I do know the data show that somebody with mental illness is far more likely to be victimized themselves that than they well. are than that they are well. to be a perpetrator. Well. Yes. People yes. who are mentally ill are are very you know <clears throat> prone to exploitation and, and violence yes, yes, and, yes, yes, and, yes. And, and it's terrible. And so again, I emerged, you know, something else I emerged from my book with is that while we really, really need more mental health resources in this country, especially early intervention, especially yeah. early intervention. If something terrible happens to a child, especially a child who's been through through trauma. Uh, in fact, there's some research out there that, sa- that shows in later life, a, a psychopath can't be helped. If they get treated, it gets worse. Some data have shown, you know, their condition gets it's worse, but maybe a child early on, if we get, and some evidence suggests like a multi-systems intervention, like school and home and friends and whatnot, something bad happens to a child, help them early on. And so, right. So I emerged with, with, with this, with this, this knowledge that we really, you know, this exclamation point, we really need more mental health resources. But I'll tell you what, I also emerged with knowing that we need more police resources. Mm-hmm. So, right. So maybe, maybe if, if the detectives had more resources at their disposal, maybe the person wouldn't rise to the, you know, meeting the criteria for the third murder and not be a serial killer. Yeah, um, of course. I imagine that we'll have fewer serial killers because of our sophisticated detection techniques these days. But still, um, I know and you know the world is not like the television show CSI. No. My no. my friends at the no. New York no. State Police Department assure me that no. it doesn't work like that. You know, you don't get your results back, you know, free and quickly. It's thousands and thousands and yeah. thousands of dollars for testing that police just don't have. Um, just take a look at any state's, you know, rape kit backlog. We just mm-hmm. don't have those resources. Yeah. And as a citizen, I don't understand that. Yeah. Right? No, no, so, no, 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 no. I'm, right? with, I'm with you on that. Yep. I, I would say the mental health piece, I know this gets talked about a lot and stuff, especially with the homelessness problem. I have a, a friend of mine, we've talked about it, uh, Chris Ferguson. And, um, <clears throat> and, you know, both he and I, um, you know, I obviously in the clinical world, he he does a lot of the, the research stuff. And we both agree that there should be some modern form of uh, institutionalization. Of course, now this is not a, this is, I guess, a, in, in some circles, a, a uh, controversial uh, uh, <laughs> suggestion. Most people are still traumatized, you know, loosely, I'm usually loosely using that word with you know what institutionalization was like in the 40s and 50s and 60s sure. and 70s and that whole process of deinstitutionalization but there are my, my view on this is it doesn't matter after a certain point so i think what you're saying proactive early intervention can be helpful but for people that are adults that have had decades of chronic mental illness and they are currently living in tents on the streets in many major cities We've let them down. There's no possible way um, without very serious um, uh, uh, treatment 24-7 that they can be sustainable, I don't think. I've worked with you know inpatient and outpatient for a long time. I don't see that. I don't you're, see you're, that happening. And I and, and we need we need institutionalization, but for very uh, chronic folks. Um, and 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 that's yeah. that's a hard thing to to really get people to get excited about and money behind. I think there's ways you could probably do it, but 
I think that that's important for people that are in their 40s and they've had schizophrenia since they were 19. I, I absolutely agree. have to do that. You I agree with you. Uh, and working with clinical students, I mean, that's even though I'm not a clinician, that's what I do. Uh, one of my students did a study on trans institutionalization, right? So what happens when you get out, out of a mental health inpatient? Uh, there's there's a likelihood you go into jail, right? And even, oh, yeah. Right? So trans institutionalization. And you know that there's a problem when each state would have 15 beds only available in a psychiatric unit. And I hear you, and it doesn't have to be institution like we hear from the 1940s, cold mm-hmm. and sterile and abusive yeah, and yeah, neglectful, yeah. right? But why not? get people the help that, that, that they need. And just what you were saying was reminds me of, you know, so much research shows that someone who is mentally ill, let's say somebody with schizophrenia, it's not a one size fits all approach to treating them. They, you need, you know, to, to, you know, different tests and approaches to see what works for that person. So of course, being in one place in a safe environment where, where there's access to food and healthcare and, and, and safety would help that person. And, and like you as a citizen uh, and someone, you know, loosely in the mental health field, I don't know why we can't do that. We have, we have money in the United States for so many other things. Uh, Why don't we have money for mental health and why don't we have money to feed our freaking school children give school kids lunch that's another thing i don't understand might not be related to my book but that's just something <laughs> no i am i am keenly aware I, of that kids well, don't have anything to eat in school we yes, need to do a little yeah. bit better yeah i i, I agree i mean I, we, we saw that in the pandemic where you know they were still running lunch programs because that's the only the only meal kids would have during the day yes. which is absolutely you know depressing but i agree about the institutionalization piece and about the treatment and i think you could you could you could be on the right path towards solving a lot of things and a, and a modernized version. It's, it's basically the Dorothea Dix model for, you know, 2023 instead of 1858, you know, it's just right. creating a kind of world within a city uh, or city within a city of, you know, everything sustainable and stuff. And, uh, you know, but it, it, you know, what are you going to do? So you talk about uh, this study you did, which you, you can go as, as, in the details as you want, okay. in the weeds as you want, you go full runway, full runway on this. Um, about uh, uh, had uh, sixty-four female uh, serial killers. Uh, you had already talked about some of the dra- demographics right. earlier, but just tell us how you did the study, what the selection process was, and tell us your research methods, and you know, and the selection and testing and results and all the fun sure. stuff and studies. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So my student Aaron Murphy and I. Uh, we, we wanted to do a study on female serial killers, and we got a couple other of my colleagues involved. Tom Bowers, who's a forensic uh, clinical psychologist, Claire Flaherty, who is a neurologist and a clinical psychologist, and then uh, one of my clinical students at the time, her name is Lavina Ho. Uh, so what we did was we used what's called the mass media method. Um, so I didn't interview anybody, right? I'm not a clinician. I'm not allowed to do that. And I wouldn't do it anyway. I don't have the skills, but what we did was we could, I keep saying that and I know it, but we have to, um, what we did was we found, you know, original newspaper reports, court documents, whatever we could find access that spilled out facts for us. Um, and I, I, I have to say it's, it's interesting because stuff we pulled out of the newspaper of the time, remember we're not talking about fake news. We're not talking about journalistic interpretation. Reporters just, you know, for the most part, report the facts that they find. So, and, and what we derive from, if it helps, if what we derive from those reports really did 
come out exactly like what clinicians and their other clinicians and their research had said. But anyway, we read newspapers, court documents, sometimes historical societies. I didn't do books and whatnot. Books are secondary sources. We went to, you know, newspapers, et cetera. And what we found were 64 women who committed their crimes in the United States. Uh, We didn't do team killers because I wanted to make sure. So there's more female serial killers who did their committed their crimes in teams, but you can't really parse out who did what or who wanted to do what, who planned what, and who has what mental illness, right? So we just did solo per- perpetrators, and we didn't include people who had like um, wartime or religious ideology, like people who killed for Charles Manson and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so solo female serial killers who committed the crimes in the United States, and we were able to identify 64. And what we did was we gathered as much information as possible. Um, on their crimes, their motives, their victims. And nobody had done anything like this before. So that's why I thought it was important, like I said, even though I'm not in the clinical field, to to collect uh, mental illness data and whatnot. Uh, And what we did was uh, we published a study in the Journal of Forensic Psychiatry and Psychology. And we wrote out, I mean, we called it a a profile. I understand profile could be data presentation, but we we called it that. And uh, we wrote out what might exemplify based on statistics, a quote unquote, typical female serial killer. And we said, she's likely white. She's probably been married. She's probably had multiple marriages, um, probably in her twenties or thirties, maybe middle-class, probably Christian, at least average intelligence. She's probably average or above average attractiveness, uh, probably going to have a job, very good chance. She's a healthcare worker Um, background. Uh, besides mental illness, there might be some abuse issues um, that that we did find that not all the time, but but probably more common than 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 typical. Um, personalities could vary, right? She could be arrogant. She could be withdrawn. She could be flippant. Um, there could be a triggering crisis event, but we didn't find that that commonly. But what we found was also about victims. Um, people who are around her, so physically around her, uh, particularly people who are related to her are at risk, um, especially people who are vulnerable. So the elderly, people who are sick and people who are children. Uh, and then just to wrap it up, major motives for money or power. Most common means poisoning, but also used some asphyxiation in there, like smothering by pillow. Um, and that might be to mimic natural death or avoid detection. And then we found that these women, um, so women did commit these crimes in suburban, urban, and rural areas. And sometimes it went across those different regions, but the most common then would be suburban areas. So I'm not saying, you know, suburban only, but across those areas. So we put together those statistics based, uh, we put together that profile based on the, the, the frequencies and the means and such that that we found um and you know so, uh, sorry, ahead, sorry what was what was this what was this time frame again from 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 when to when did you look at the 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 newspapers and the, the mass mass media and things like that what was the time the years let me let me just grab that those numbers for you so that i make sure i i answered i answer you correctly so i'm just going to go to my methods here um 1821 to 2008 in the United States, yeah. In the United the- States, yeah. Mm-hmm. We went with the United States because I'm in the United States, and we had, you know, we, through 
I, I'm part of Penn State University. We have superior library. I have access to newspapers and and you know different periodicals around. But you know if it's not in the it's not in English, I'm not able to read it. So I just kept it sure. in the United States. So you know rightly so there may be generalizability issues. I'm gonna I'm gonna be bold and say that if you conducted this study in different Western nations, you'd find just about the same thing. That's my bold prediction. But mm -hmm. I don't know Western versus Eastern culture or Western versus tribal societies and whatnot, I, I wouldn't be able to make a prediction on that. Okay. Okay. And so after, after finding all of these things and having this, this, this profile, what was the, I guess, some of the, the conclusions that you were able to come to, uh, you know, some of the results, I guess, but what were some of the conclusions that you were able to really hang your, your hat on and say, okay, this is, this is what we found and this is what we can say. And this is what we can't say maybe. Sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, Really, what what I just read to you, those the, we were we were there to to present data, right? Just you know, what we I'm a data wrangler. I wanted to show here, here these are the commonalities. But as far as being an evolutionary psychologist, you know, noting that these women, the top motive was for profit. It got my evolutionary wheels thinking, and you know, at that time, reviewing other people's research, I'm like, okay, well, what's the number one motive for male serial killers? And it was, it was sexual gratification. I'm like, aha, men kill for sex, women kill for money. Um, and then later on, what we did was I took the data we had for the female serial killers, so the same women, and then we collected data on male serial killers in a, uh, an age-matched and era-matched studies. So if okay. this, I'm just going to make this up, right? So if this female serial killer was 35 and committed her crimes in the 1950s, we found a male who was around that age committed his crime. And we did this matched sample study where we compare male and female differences. And then again, yeah, of course, our study yielded that men typically kill for sex, women typically kill for money. And you could trace that evolution to, to, to evolutionary tendencies. Let me just say, though, of course, exclamation point, I'm not saying people evolved to be serial killers if we did we wouldn't be here right they probably right, right. probably all be up be gone by now but in terms of you know evolved strategies males versus females have based on fundamental reproductive uh differences between the sexes right so you think you know this goes way back to like Triver, trivers theory on mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh different uh parental investment and whatnot right so men produce millions of sperm on a daily basis women you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have so men of course across time culture studies teams right men prefer prefer more sex more frequent sex than do do women there's a premium on on sexuality there again i'm not saying women aren't sexual because women are sexual but men are are according to data far more sexual so men killing for sex didn't surprise me and then if you think about that another way right men produce millions of sperm on a daily basis women born with all the eggs you'll ever have you have to be really really careful of your your reproductive opportunities and so of course you'd gravitate toward toward resources so women killing for for resources just didn't necessarily surprise me as a as a research psychologist uh, mm -hmm. based in, you know, with training in evolutionary psych. So that's what I came from evolution. You know, that's what I derived from this. But also what what we derived, generally speaking, was I don't think anybody to the extent that my team did before emphasized, oh, my goodness. Wow. There's a lot of mental illness here 
that hasn't been talked about in the forensic literature before. In fact, not too many people have done, you know, a large scale study of female serial killers. There's a lot of case studies. I mean, Eric Hickey and and, and his team surely did Kelleher, Kelleher, Amanda Farrell at all. They did they did some research, but it's the studies are few and far between. So to find that level of mental illness, about you know, almost 40% had some form of diagnosable mental illness. And again, I was surrounded by clinicians on this paper. So we were able to, to say that. Uh, that was very surprising. And, and to me, you know, it set the stage for, wow, okay, if there's mental illness involved, and clearly it went un, untreated, right? Or clearly, you know, it wasn't, if, even if it was treated, it wasn't treated to the extent needed. Uh, maybe we could do a little bit better in, in the world in terms of helping people. So those were some take-home themes from that study. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very, very important and, and very powerful to to do that kind of work in, in that study. I guess you talk about the the motivations for for females for you know for for monetary gain or 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 otherwise. Because what about this idea you're talking about some of the, in the book, some stories about some of them would would kill children their right. own children right and some some infanticide and i guess what that obviously can't be for money entirely right right absolutely so what's the motivation? what do we make of that right. yeah. yeah so that, that's that's interesting now that that may be it well first of all if you are killing for money and you're getting your kids this is going to sound awful right but getting your kids out of the way yeah you are keeping more resources for yourself but that's certainly that resource gathering mechanism gone awry, right? Because you're supposed to gather resources unconsciously to provide truly for yourself, but also for your offspring, right? So that your offspring grow up and they reproduce and they they pass on genes to the next generation. So something's going terribly wrong. Um, but in terms of killing killing kids, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, people do ask me that. Well, Marissa, you're arguing there might be an evolutionary motive, but certainly killing your kids is the antithesis of reproductive strategy right and so just just like I mean, it depends said, on depends on the animal right? well, well that's well you know we that, see this in, in in other 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 animals or other animal yeah, kingdoms sure. we absolutely do so if, you know a, if a baby if, if a squirrel comes in and kills the unrelated squirrel babies then there's more resources for his squirrel babies but why would you kill kill your own and i what, what i thought about was uh you know Think about the caregiving mechanism. So an evolved caregiving mechanism as as this distribution of, of you know, you know, inherited degrees of this. And mm -hmm. you, you, know, you talk about we were talking about the bell curve before. Right. With with that 68 percent in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so think of mothers. Right. So right in the middle of the, the bell curve would be the quote unquote normal mother, the right amount of love and 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 caring and and investment, allowing autonomy for the kid to learn like good parents, you know, their kids are going to live to see another day, good parents. And think about like maybe on one end of the tail, you have those parents that are over-involved and over-indulgent and, and they get anxiety disorders, just worrying about every single thing that their kid does, like too highly involved. All right. Yeah. But then think about the other end of the tail on the belt curve distribution, where you get people who harm their kids and abuse their kids. And then think down way deep down in that other tail are people who kill their kids. Yeah. So, and so it's just a malfunction of the caregiving mechanism. You're right. You said before, 
things don't always go neatly as planned, right? There's probably not some intelligent designer behind the scenes saying, you know, and, and, and you get connectivity and you get connectivity, right? Something could go wrong along those lines. And surely something had to have gone wrong in, in, in women who killed their kids. Yeah, it's, just, it's one of those, uh, it seems like it's one of those mysteries of sorts. Right. Of, you know, we don't have all the answers for things, which is frustrating, but it is it is peculiar, the <clears throat> inner workings of the human mind and things we still don't quite understand. Um, you know, yeah. I really, I really think about, you know, in this, in, 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 on this bit of things, right. A lot of, a lot of the works by Dostoevsky. I mean, if, if anybody's read Crime and Punishment, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a great book, but you know, there's, there's, it's amazing because it's this, like the, the psychological profile of somebody, which is amazing, which is about why did he kill two people? Right. You know, and, uh, and he, 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 he didn't know why it just came to him. Right. Well, well, you're, you're exactly right. Now, some, some of the female serial killers in the book say, I don't know why I did it. Yeah. Um, but if you do go to, to infanticide, I mean, there was at least one woman who said, well, I killed the kids to get it out of the way. They really did. And for infanticide in particular, you can go to some anthropological theories like by Sarah Hardy and, 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 and others that uh, infanticide is, is in the animal kingdom is theorized to happen as a result of one hypothesis is overcrowding. And you take the case of somebody like in the book, I mentioned the case of Lydia Sherman, where um, I think she had eight, there was eight kids in the family at one point. It's not hard to imagine that there was overcrowding in a middle-class household. Now that's terrible, right? We know that I'm not going to call babies overcrowding, but think about this. You know, she's already not thinking the way we do. Uh, and just unconsciously, you know, maybe there's this primal, primal drive to, to you know, eliminate some of the mouths to feed, just like what happens in the animal kingdom. And it's disturbing and it's disgusting and it's unkind, uh, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, it exists. And and that's that's the, the thing about it is that's the thing that makes everyone uncomfortable is the fact that it exists, right? Because it's like, why? Why does it exist? And we don't have a whole spelled out, you know, th- you know, theory of why and why wouldn't, I mean, I'm, there may be one that we stumble upon at some point, but it's hard to really know concretely, you know, to, 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 to take the life of another person is already difficult to imagine, right. but, but to take the life of a child is, is another layer. And then it's your own child is another layer. And of course people would say, exactly. well, of course this person's mentally ill. Yeah sure you could say it that way is it is it is it diagnostic in the in the system that we have maybe maybe not but there is something different about how this person's yeah. mind is working for sure you're you're absolutely right and so i mean but don't put me on a jury because right away i'm gonna say that person's mentally ill they don't think like <laughs> we do right, right. I, right. right. they right. don't she doesn't think like we do in the case of lydia sherman she poisoned three of her husbands at least yeah. that we they know of and, and killed she probably killed about 11 people according to the estimates and some of them were little little babies and mm-hmm. and um you mentioned before why are people interested in that people typically read that in, and recoil you know mm-hmm. but some for some reason if if it's an adult and it's more you know is, is visualizable a word like i can see the damage that this person inflicted on this other human being i can 
comprehend it a little bit more. I, I'm not really sure how that works either. And then you had a really, I mean, everything you're saying is great. You had another great point before, like, well, what makes this person go this way? But as a psychologist, we don't know what makes somebody's mind normal. So how are we going to know what makes it abnormal? Exactly. It's like when we talk about, right, when we talk about, you know, I teach human sexuality. When we talk about sexual orientation in class, we don't know what makes somebody you know what makes them heterosexual let alone why somebody would would be non-heterosexual we just don't know exactly how that works yet now when we solve these mysteries i i'm not sure but i i mean we it, but providing more mental health resources and research is something we can do and providing police and detectives with more you know the, with with more funding and, and more availability of experts and tests and whatnot we can do this so why don't we work on what we can do before we you know, work on that other stuff? I Yeah, I agree with you on all of that. I guess that my point of this is, and I'm, I'm removing myself from a, like a personal thing of like, a, oh, this is so terrible. I mean, there's an, the obvious point of this. That these things are terrible. But look, I put it this way. Let me, let me, let me change it up for a minute. If we'll do the bell curve thing. So 68% okay. of us, et cetera. And let's say on the other end of the tail, we got the very intelligent, the super empathic, humble, like all the good stuff we like, right? And they're they're much different than folks in the middle. But it's all the good stuff we like. It's fairly adaptive in society. There's no problems with it. We wouldn't want to treat them per se. Um, right. Maybe some people would. We would want to say, well, you're this is different. You're in, you know, you're two standard or three standard deviations above the mean. That's but but the question here is is not necessarily the the frequency or the volume. You could only be less than one percent of the population. The question here is more, and it's not that there's difference. That's not the point here either. To me, it becomes what do we as a society and that will evolve and change over time, um, agree upon as mm, adaptive. Right. What, is, what is not going to cause harm or, 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 or um, infringe on someone's well-being? But uh, philosophically and ethically, I don't think that's a universal, meaning is the universal – does everyone have the same definition of well-being? Um, no, they so, don't. So, so, no. so, so that's one problem with that. And even if you take that that is a universal, uh, which I think you probably could based on the humanity of somebody, um, you still have to say – well, society has to say or agree, this is not okay. We, we're not okay with these behaviors. And and sure, give treatment for that. But to me, that's just that's just difference in the way that we don't agree upon as a society is 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 productive. I guess you could say. I my point here on this is at the end of the day, there's still human beings, right. there's still individuals that have thoughts and feelings and intuitions and motives and. And many of them could be very uh, grotesque and vile, and they may have done other things. But if it becomes this thing of if you have a universal of humanity, you still have to care, well, if you're consistent, 
about all humans, not just right. the ones you like, or and especially the ones that may be different. And I think that not everyone has to do that, but there has to be enough people that are doing that. Well, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And it's for Rogerian thinking, right? Like, well, yeah. you know, you're a person and, and I, we have to have some kind of care. Um, and then we go back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is this, these things are not okay, but we sure are interested in programs and paraphernalia and books right. and videos and, right. and documentaries right. and, right. and podcasts about this kind of thing. Right. Uh, and, and it shows you we're, we're interested. Are we interested in, in stopping it? Hopefully. Right. So, but, but you're absolutely right. And then what I wanted to say something, speaking to what you were, you were talking about in terms of, you know, maybe on one end we have a psychopath that doesn't feel but the other end of the spectrum when somebody feels too deeply isn't that also a disorder isn't can't that be like anxiety or right we- well 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 much like well, much as as the whole disorder kind of, of of language i would say it's definitely a potential for it to be not adaptive for other people in society right. you know and and that's problematic i mean for a variety of ways i mean if you want to use a freudian term i mean their super ego is like on a max of like 11 or whatever and that's not always helpful right that's not always helpful so yes i mean there there is an in 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 certain um on certain ends of this where but the, the problem with this becomes like because somebody is different or because they 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 are different from the norm it's not that there's this, how do we merge or morph people to just be more quote unquote normative? That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But it's more of how do we, if there's a majority of people that do things in a more analogous way, and then we bump into folks that are on you know two or three standard deviations above the mean in right. either direction, how do we interact with folks that are different? Not that we change that they're different, but that how do we interact with the, how they're different? And And I think the the one thing there is, is behavior, right? If the behavior is maladaptive to society that we've all agreed on, you go and you kill people. We've all agreed that that's not okay to do. You're exactly right. I mean, what about so somebody then we say, okay, right. we don't do that. But what about but, somebody who's athletic? Three or two or three standard deviations. We celebrate them. Somebody right. who's artistic, you get Picasso. Two or three standard deviations. Right. You right. celebrate right. this. But if you take that to the extreme, and you're going to kill three people or more, we've got to prevent this. We've got to understand this right. so we can prevent it. And if we can help you. You know, if we can recognize that something is different about somebody in a bad way early on, maybe we can help with that. Because I agree with you, these people, mm. the people who, did, who committed these crimes, the crimes are heinous, and there's just no way to explain them away. Absolutely. But, yeah. but like you said, they're they're people. All right, Eileen Moronis was a person. She was yeah. a person, and she needed help, and she didn't get it, and 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 we let her down. Society let her down. So. Yeah, you know, they, they even let derelicts around her when she was in prison. Like somebody who was a horse trainer went in there and pretended he said he was going to be her lawyer, and 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 those around her let that happen. We let her down. So then, what? So the rhetorical question: What what do we do, or is it rhetorical? Yeah, well, and again, obviously, what you've said and what I agree with is, you know, you know, early prevention and treatment. I think is part of it. I think for people that have really chronic issues, I think ideally some form of, uh, you know, a modern. Uh, healthy, um, humane institutionalization. And I think that there's this, um, there's this question we keep having as a society in a variety of ways that for folks that 
are different, how do we celebrate difference? Um, but not entirely. I mean, we, 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 we don't want to obviously bully or ostracize people. Right. It's, it's how do we, this is kind of a cliche, but how do we coexist with people that are different than us and in dramatic or fundamental ways, either or so, okay. You, in the negative space, right? We don't want people killing people. Okay. Right. We manage that. We, we treat that. Okay. But then how do we still have them as humans and individuals that can do other things? Right. And then the reverse, how do you have people that are very much, um, uh, you know, you said athletes or things like that. Well, we don't just see them as an athlete. You know, we see them also as people that have other thoughts and feelings, things like that. Um, but do and, we? And, but do we? Oh, we, right? we, we don't. But, but I'm, do that, that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> we should. We, we should. Right? We should. I, I agree. Yes, we, right? we should. The movie star, like the movie star is the movie <laughs> yeah. star. The athletes, the, the athletes. Right. Just this, so nothing to do with my book. But like, what? But Mia Farrow's mother lived near where I live. Uh-huh. When she passed away. There were people hiding around tombstones trying to take Mia Farrow's picture. And we're, I'm yelling at the TV, leave her the hell alone. Like, that's yeah. a person. Her mother died. No, no, she's fair game. No, she's not. Her mother died. Yeah. Like, it was just yeah. really bizarre. She's a human being, right? So, you know, circling back, right? What do we do with people who are detrimental to society? And I hear you. And just to stress, like, when we say institutionalized, not a cold, you know, callous, something like, you know, Philippe Pinnell wanted to prevent, nothing like that. Yeah. You know, a home where you can live and be cared for and treated as a person with with dignity and get the help you need. And well, absolutely on board with that. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the, the, the point of institutionalization in a humane way, in a modern 21st century way, would be for... Um, the, the primary thing is saying that, look, there is some difference here, whatever it may be, neurological, personality, mental illness, et cetera. The biggest thing is that overwhelmingly, unfortunately, for whatever reason, you pose a giant risk, potentially, uh, risk in a lot of different ways uh, of, of that definition, to society. Right. Okay. So we're going to manage this we're going to treat this you know we're going to try as best work towards rehabilitation if that's possible but you can still have that i i talked with um uh simon baron cohen uh, not that long ago and interesting we, yep. we, we, we talked about um you know autism because this thing you know he's done sure. that research for a long time and you know he 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 really he does not again I, he said this many times like the idea of autism as a disorder Right. He talks about it in terms of difference and disability. He said there are aspects of autism that is that that, that can be disabling for sure, but there's a lot of aspects of autism that is different, and we need people that are you know pattern seekers and you know um, you know synthesizing all these ways in which he describes it. And I think that's true for a lot of things for people that are different, right? And he's Absolutely. describing how do we. How do we coexist with people that can have some challenges with some things, but then there's some positive aspects that have difference. And so, you know, I have, I'm obviously not making any comparisons here, but my point is, is that there's an idea of for people that are different, positive or negative, how we agree in society, how do we, you know, treat and rehabilitate and do risk management, but how do we also have folks flourish uh, as well um, as human beings, if we agree that all humans that 
the thing that unites all people is our humanity. Obviously, there's so many individual differences, and that's good and bad, right? There's some yeah. positive aspects right. and negative sure. aspects. But, but if the human is there, then then you know basic human rights, if you will. Well, that goes obviously for people that are are victims of horrible crimes and their families. But at a certain point for certain people and certain providers that you also have to look at, quote unquote, the people that are um, have committed those crimes as well, both are human. Oh, and absolutely. How, and how, absolutely. Do, how do we treat both as human? Of course, we adjudicate people for their crimes, but we also want to, uh, and, if, and if various punishments are there, that's that, of course, but we also want to have treatment too. I mean, when you think about the long-term thing, when all that's over and done with, you know, the courtroom's done, the sentencing's done, all that. Okay. Okay. But how do we also treat people? I agree and, with you. And that's, that's really important. And that's a, yeah, that's a very hard conversation to have. Right? I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, another, I'll tell you another take-home point. I emerged from my book um, appalled by the, the death penalty. And oh, people yeah, might yeah. not want to hear that that yeah. either, but just you know, I'll, uh, I'll lay my cards out here. I, I I've been opposed to death penalty for a very long time. So. I I I hear you, and just along the lines of everything you just said, this is a this is a person, and they did really really horrible things. And again, of sure. course, I'm on the side of the victims and their family. But I, I I read this, you know, the the case studies, you know, uh, just watching someone writhe and die through a window <clears throat> is not my idea of justice. It, it's no. it's it's not. What about restorative justice? Like, what can we do mm-hmm. to, you know, this is this is still a person. What can we do to, you know, but they've they've got to. Justice has to happen for the victims and their families. So, what form might that take without taking a life in return? Uh, and and I don't know the answer to that. Only that I just don't like some of the things I read about. You know, for example, one female serial killer, the the the, the uh, electric chair didn't work quite the way it should, and it caught her legs on fire. And it's just mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's does, does that sound right in anybody's mind? I mean, I guess it, to each their own. Uh, it's just not something I would support. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely with you. So I mean, obviously, we've 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 talked about all of these these different components of you know obviously uh, the humanity and on on all aspects and difference and disorder and all this stuff. And so um, it's interesting hearing you talk about some of the takeaways from you get into a you know to write a book right. and then you learn all this stuff writing it and all this you know oh my goodness you know, things you didn't re- recognize or, right. or realize which things is cool. about your things about yourself too i'm sure yeah it's yeah. just really 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 interesting i i wanted to just ask a a, a, f- a few more questions here about you mentioned this earlier on <clears throat> about the some of the neuroscience behind uh serial killers and so right. you know we kind of mentioned it and so i just pitch this question again about um you know the this idea of it potentially serial killing and stuff like that you know being a possible neurological disorder you know you can tell me any of your your thoughts on that and then and then also the the importance of you know the the pfc and and ofc amygdala and, and how there's certain parts of the brain that are you know we we consider i guess <clears throat> a little bit more significant or have shown to have something going on with some of this stuff. So let me just, just chat about some of the things you highlight in that chapter in the book. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, 
people expect me to talk about the biopsychology of serial murder. I can tell you that there's just not a lot of great evidence out there. Surely the, the few studies that are out there are case studies. Almost all of them are on male serial killers. Um, I, I think I found in the in the literature, and again, I do not examine female serial killers myself. I, I picked out empirical studies, good ones from the literature. I found one that examined a female serial killer who committed oh. crimes in Mexico. Um, and basically what they found was that her brain doesn't respond to emotional events the way other people's brains do. And that's, you know, not surprising, right? So that's like a, yeah. a neurological substrate of psychopathy, just you're, you're not responding to, to emotionality. With some of the male serial killers out there, definitely maybe some some lesions in 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 brain matter or maybe some frontal lobe injuries uh or or dysfunction but nothing no body of compelling evidence the only thing i could say is that if we tie serial murder to psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder this in turn has been tied to mixed evidence about frontal lobe dysfunction or executive dysfunction or disexecutive function, whatever people want to call it in the literature. So when you have proper executive function, right, you can make moral judgments. You can decide, hey, I'm not going to throw a plate at my mother. That's not a good idea. I'm not going to punch a hole in the wall. Or I can keep track of time and keep on task. Or I can go over here and do this thing and come back and remember what I was involved in in the first place. That's executive function. And it helps you get along in our society, right? And so what that is, is your what they say, generally speaking, is your frontal regions are tied to your limbic regions, your emotional regions. And when your limbic regions send up emotional impulses, your frontal lobes can say, hey, you know, your, your frontal regions can say, hey, control that or keep that in check or really here's how I should respond in this emotional situation. So for you to have proper executive function, you have to have your frontal regions working correctly, your limbic regions working correctly, and them to be connected together directly right so to, to have this process in place and so somebody who commits serial murder i don't know are they you know can we argue there they are and i wrote about this in the book you know serial murder then can't we say it's planned if you're going to do this crime and then this one and then this one and so that's not impulsivity so maybe it's just not relevant at all but i've heard people tie violent crime and criminals and maybe female, uh, male maybe male serial killers more thoroughly to to these these this disexecutive function it could be the case i can tell you i spent a long time in the literature that is what i do i'm a data wrangler i'm a researcher right i research things that have been published i have not found that much in the literature about the neuroscience of serial murder maybe i missed some stuff okay then the next book can can talk about it it's just not out there and i can't when people you know when i go on speaking engagements people really want to hear about this and i'm like look i can't make it up there's just not a lot of stuff i even had somebody yell back at me once yes it is i'm like okay well then you you do that in your presentation and i'm going to come to it and listen because it's not there i'm being real with you yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then some of the more recent murderers whom we might have access to the brains with more sophisticated equipment, it just hasn't happened. Like the, the story goes that the family of Jeffrey Dahmer didn't want his brain examined and they won in a court case. Or John Wayne Gacy, his sister said, okay, you could study his brain. The psychiatrist literally took his brain home in a jar in her passenger seat of her car. His brain rode shotgun in a car. If we get to examine, what, what the hell kind of conclusion? That We can't. 
The science yeah. is there, but we don't have that evidence yet. We don't yeah. have the evidence. And the presentation, my guess would be so heterogeneous. In other words, we're, it, yours is different from yours is different from yours. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we're going to be ex extrapolate commonalities. So it's just not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, 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 I mean, I'm not in this research, but the little bit I've read on it, that's kind of the takeaway I've, I've, I've got on it as well. So it'd be interesting though, is this room to, to grow. I mean, the brain is, yes. brain research is obviously, you know, every six months it's changing. So, you know, there's lots of things you can, you can always, you know, for, for future you're, students you're, can look up. <clears throat> you're, you're absolutely right. And just let me, let me add, I've been teaching biopsych for uh, 15 years. I don't mm -hmm. use a textbook anymore. Not that they're not good books, yeah. but they're, there's, it's been, my, and I don't want to get sued by textbook people, but like, I just, it's, it's, you know, in 2023, the the most recently published textbook I would have might have findings from what, 2020 or 2021. Oh, yeah. And oh, the yeah. field is just so changing all the time that I just put together my own materials. You know, I, yeah, I, yeah. Let, let's add that we respect textbook writers enormously. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I find greater utility in assembling the materials yeah. for my students myself. There, yeah, there are some things that are kind of pretty standard. I mean, you got to do, you know, Ramoni Cajal and you got to do, you know, all of these, you know, kind of the the historical stuff and you know, basic neuroanatomy isn't that different. You know, we know what the cerebellum does, you know, things like that. But, you know, in terms of even functionality of things, you know, it's, it is we're learning new things and changing and stuff. So um, it's, it's absolutely true. I want to ask about one of the, the last questions here is about <clears throat> you have a. A chapter or so, I think, on comparing uh, male and female serial killers, which you know yeah. we've talked we've talked a little bit about you know male serial killers here in, in, in the conversation. But what, what did you say were the biggest, I guess, similarities and differences, and how does that map on to what we understand generally about sex differences between men and women from an evolutionary perspective? Sure. So. Being honest, I'm pulling up my my paper so I could get it right. I've got to pull up my cheat sheet here. And then the okay. study we did, Harrison et al. 2019, published in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences. Uh, we did find you know stark contrast between the crimes of male and female serial killers. And I let me give the take home first, and then I'll get into the individuals. Sure, sure. It's just that right there at one point, even authorities said there are no female serial killers, and they attributed mm -hmm. all serial murders all serial murders to sexual motives. And we know that's not true. And if we know that there are sex differences and we find a crime that exhibits particular characteristics, Lordy, at least we could go down the right path, right? So we could say, okay, well, this was probably a woman who did these things or, or probably a man. So, um, so male serial killers, you know, almost always target at least one stranger versus mm -hmm. almost all female serial killers tend to target at least one person they know. So male serial killers kill strangers, female serial killers kill those around them, those familiar to them. Female serial killers were a lot more likely to be, be related to at least one victim. Um, female serial killers were more than twice as likely to have murdered their spouse or their partner. Um, so for motives in terms of uh, female serial killers, most commonly financial gain for, for men, most commonly sexual, uh, men were far more likely to stalk their victim before killing them. Um, in terms of education levels, we saw some differences. Most had, most male serial killers had high school or less. Women, most of the time were uh, just at, at least high school educated, if not some college. Uh, Women serial killers were more likely to be uh, in, a, in a relationship, so married or with somebody at the time of their crimes and were males. Um, it's it, interesting, 
male serial killers were statistically more likely to have a mental health issue, but it's still a lot, right? So about 90% of male serial killers. And in this one study, we found 43% of female serial killers. Uh, and then the most common method of killing for men, for male serial killers, it was asphyxiation. And for women, it was poisoning. Um, and then one other thing I, I want to bring up, and I wonder what you think about this, is that we did found, and I wasn't the first person to say this, Eric Hickey had said this a long time ago, but the nickname that people give to serial killers for women far more frequently says the gender, like Tiger Woman or whatnot, versus you don't hear like Mr. BTK or, or you know, that guy who's the hillside strangler. You don't hear the gender in the nickname of of, of of male serial killers but you hear it in a like, giggling granny you hear it in the the mm. nicknames of female serial killers so i just you know pulled up my paper and rattled off some of the the differences we found but again that's this tells you who should we be looking for if we find this mm-hmm. this you know this these crimes with these characteristics yeah on the, on the last point i would and the nicknames i would imagine there's a, there's definitely a probably a gendered aspect to that for sure I would say also probably just the infrequency of it. Most people don't yeah. assume that, you know, women would, would kill that way. And so there's probably a, that would be my assumption. Is right. Sort of well, you know what, you'd, you'd be, statistically speaking, you'd be right because about the, the estimates are, and these aren't my estimates, these are from the FBI and whatnot, that only about one out of six were female serial killers, like, you know, five out of six males. So if you guessed, hey, males, yeah, you'd probably be right, right? The odds are in your favor, but so you're absolutely right. So maybe there's the need to ascribe the gender uh, or maybe it's a, a bias that people are just not yeah. thinking women are capable of these crimes, which is, again, a point of me writing the book. Women are just as deadly, just d- maybe differentially yeah. deadly via poison, you know, to right. people they know, but the crimes are no less heinous, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you you detail a lot of that in the in the in the beginning chapters of some of these accounts. It's it's, it's pretty uh, you know awful and grotesque. Sure. The the last question I have here is is that you know you you've you've written about female serial killers. You've done research on it, um, and you know there it's important to understand. But where where do we where do we see I guess this research going, and how can we continue to have good research done on? on female serial killers or, or, or women that commit, you know, multiple murders, you know, how do we, where do you see, I mean, obviously I'm sure there's research you're doing on this or maybe where other people could do it, but where would you want to see research being done in the future to have a, a fuller understanding of, of, of these types of uh, profiles? Sure. Absolutely. So in my research, uh, when we were investigating mental health, we really ticked yes or no. I, I haven't mm-hmm. analyzed what, that entailed, it, you know, I mean, I haven't lists like depression or anxiety or um, factitious disorder imposed on another, also known as Munchausen's by proxy, but just maybe an analysis of, you know, what led to what I would like to see happen. Um, I would like to see this information being used to inform police and detective work. Uh, if you pull up the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation website, the, the information about serial murder largely speaks, well, I should say only speaks to crimes that are mostly characteristic of male serial killers. I'd like to see some updates for law enforcement to have as a reference. Um, and then let's 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 be realistic in that this is so rare. I mean, is it, you know, do we really need to invest resources in this type of thing? Uh, and I mean, look, I'm the, per- I'm, I'm one of the people that, that does this and I'm not sure that's the case. Like, I don't, 
I don't know if there'd be like a $3 million grant to study this kind of thing, female serial killers. It's just not that common. But take it up, you know, a, a step and say, okay, well, what came from this research? Mental health, more police resources, right? I, I, that whole debate to fund the police. I don't know what that means. All I know is that my research shows that police need more money to do what they do well and, and detectives. Um, and I'm going to add my grandfather was a police detective. So not that it's a conflict of interest. I just know they need more money for what they do. Um, and then maybe what I'd like to see coming from my particular research is, you know, this deeper ongoing conversation on what constitutes sanity or, or not legal sanity. You know, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. So, you know, you know, that you killing somebody is wrong. Okay. But somebody who does that, they don't think, you know, I'm circling back. They don't think like you <laughs> and I do. If they kill eight babies, they don't think like we do. Something needs to be done to understand and to help so that this doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, no, no, I, I fully agree with uh, with all your points there. I think that that's what's you know what's important, and you can see the kind of you know the practical impl implications that can come out of doing you know really good research on this. Well, the book is called Just as Deadly: The Psychology of Female Serial Killers. It's uh, it's out everywhere. Uh, where can people find the book, and where can people find you and your research and online and all those good places? Sure, absolutely. Thank you to Cambridge University Press for taking the chance on me with this. I, I hope people are find the book. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say like it because it's disturbing, but I hope people find it engaging and informative and useful. You can find it on Cambridge University Press website. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on the websites of Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, just anywhere they sell books. It's usually available. You can find me online. I work at Penn State Harrisburg. You could look me up, Marissa Harrison. You can email me at work if you have any questions. I'm glad to engage. I, I, I'll, let me know what you thought about the book, what you what you think might happen for future directions. I'm willing to listen. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book today. No, no, I know. I listen. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful you came on. The pleasure is all mine. It was, uh, the book is great and you're, you're fantastic. And I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, the conversation uh, immensely. So, so, oh, so big, big, big thanks. Big, big, big thanks. Thank you to you too. Really, really great talking to you. And I'm going to have to learn more about the PCLR so I can engage in that a little bit more thoroughly. Absolutely. But yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Thank you for being so gracious and so well informed. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Of course. Of course. Thank you.